Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Multi-Site Masters podcast. This is the podcast series that explores the art of leading and growing multi-site businesses, especially in the hospitality and retail sectors. So my name is Lee Sheldon and I'll be your host for today's episode. I'm also co-founder of the MMU Training and Development Consultancy, in which we're dedicated to helping managers achieve consistent operational excellence, leading to sustained superior performance. Okay, so here we are for another Multisite Masters episode. Now, if such a thing is possible, I actually feel more intelligent just by being where I am. Now, uh, you, some of you out there might think that's not hard, but um, today I'm very excited. We're in the Science Museum in London, perhaps one of the most famous museums in the world, certainly in the UK. And I'm our guest today is Alistair Otto, Head of Operations for the Science Museum. Um, we're all probably going to feel a lot more intelligent by the end of today, but we're not talking about science, to be fair, although I, maybe I should quiz Alistair on his science knowledge. But today is all about operational excellence and how do you deliver an awesome, exciting, educational experience for visitors time and time again, day in, day out, in one of the most iconic locations in London. So, Alistair, welcome to Multisite Masters. Thank you. Great to have you here. Now, we're obviously going to be talking about the museum, how it started, where you are today, but maybe give us a little bit of a 90-second potted history about you, where you've come from, and how did you end up here leading operations? Yeah, um, well, actually, my career started when I was 16. I left home to pursue a career as an apprentice footballer. So I played for um, Oldham Athletic for two years as an apprentice. Um, and that was sort of my journey. You know, ever since school, I sort of dreamed of being a professional footballer, um, but I wasn't good enough. So I had to uh, rethink about what I was going to do. I did my A levels. I went down to university, and you know, my career was probably going to move towards sort of coaching, teaching in sport. Uh, and then I got an opportunity to work in sports events for mm-hmm. a short period of time, and I just took a bit of a gamble and worked for uh, and moved for and worked with a company in Bath, at the uni- uh, just close to the university, that did a lot of. Um, big sports events so uh, yeah I worked for them for, for two and a half years touring the world so mainly golf events so we travelled to do a lot of the a number of European tour events uh, in the UK and in Europe um, but I also went out to do the Cricket World Cup out in Jamaica I did the World Rowing Championships I did snooker so I really got into this the event management side and really loved it enjoyed it um, but I wanted to put down some roots because that job requires you to be around, you know, move around the world six, eight weeks at a time, sometimes longer, being away from home. I knew I wanted to sort of have roots in the UK and I'd miss my family and friends. Um, so, uh, and football was my thing and I thought, well, great, let's combine the two. Let's go and work for the FA. Let's go and work for the Football Association. Uh, but uh, despite me trying to uh, to get in the door there, there was there's no openings. So I, I made a strategic decision. I went to work for an agency that worked for mm-hmm. them. So for two years I worked for a, a company called Event360, a small company based, based in North London that deliver uh, the on-pitch ceremonies at sports events uh, and did, you know, did everything from FA Cup final to Six Nations stuff, uh, UEFA um, sort of uh, Champions League bits and pieces with them. So a lot more on the creative side, how do you create that environment and that atmosphere pre-game and then post-game with the celebrations. And did some really cool stuff with them. And then that gave me the opportunity because I was working with a team at Wembley to prove who I was and what I was about. And then I moved into Wembley and did four and a half years there. Um, <coughs> sorry, covering all the big bowl events uh, mm-hmm. I managed there as an event manager. So anything from the Champions League final in 2013 through to FA Cup finals, Vars trophy finals, the small ones, and even the gigs. So um, the concerts like Take That 
and uh, the Killers that I ran. So yeah, some big gigs at the stadium. And then I had to rethink what I was doing because I was working in sports events, but that wasn't conducive to, to having a family. And me and my wife were thinking of starting a family, but this is, you know, the demands on working in the sports event industry are huge on your time. And whilst I enjoyed it, I knew that I had to sort of take a, a different approach in, to my career and, and how could that, how could I find that balance, I guess, a bit more. Um, so I worked, so my, actually my wife found a, an opportunity and opening here at the museum uh, to move into the commercial experiences team, which was a huge gamble. Uh, I still don't understand quite why I got the job, but they must have seen something in me. Uh, and I moved into the group commercial experiences manager role here, which was managing the team here in London at the Science Museum, but also across our group. So we've got a number of different sites, uh, th four of the sites that run um, 362 days a year. That includes the Science and Industry Museum in Manchester, the Museum of um, Science and Media Museum in Bradford and the National Railway Museum in York uh, plus uh, what we call Locomotion which is up in Shieldon in County Durham which is another uh, train based museum and running the, yeah, all the commercial experiences there so things like here in London the IMAX, the simulators through to coming up with new concepts and events like uh, Power Up which is our gaming event which still runs in Manchester and London to this day which is a hands-on gaming experience really looking at the commercial opportunities that exist within um, you know in terms of what we do um, and then t after two years of doing that the head of operations role came up which was probably a bit more in my slipstream with my experience working at the stadiums um, managing the core teams that deliver the overall uh, operational aspects for, for running a, a site like this Okay, so we'll come back to in a moment and talk to us about the... That was longer than 90, 90 seconds, it? Wasn't was, it? <laughs> that's right. The head of ops uh, yeah. role, but in terms of the science museum, just the history of it, I mean, it was founded, I think, 1857. Yeah. Um, so, bit of bit of history, bit of pedigree. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, come, we... Uh, the museum's roots come off the back of the Great Exhibition that was run just actually up the road here in Hyde Park uh, in 1851, I think it was. Um, and that was when they used the profits of that to establish a core offer, wow. science, uh, which was the um, the, the, South, uh, the Kensington Museum, I think it was called back then. South Kensington Museum, yeah. that's it, yeah. And uh, so that's sort of where the V&A is now. Mm -hmm. And that's where, and it was very much focused on the arts. Um, side of things but at the same time on the same site was the patents office and that's where they had new inventions sort of displayed to the public and people couldn't see them and that led on to a collection of artifacts based around science that eventually some years later um, moved into the science museum and then I think it was sort of the early 1900s the actual museum was given its own sort of status by the government uh, and a building was um, built in uh, sort of 1937, 38, I think this building opened in its first iteration, which then showed mm -hmm. the classic um, sort of object-rich environment that you get through science and tech. Um, so that's where, that's where we've come from. And since then, the, the site has grown uh, exponentially in terms of the amount of space that we've got in order to deliver um, you know, over sort of close to 15,000 objects I think we've got on display at any one time. Wow. Now, regular listeners to this will know we're always referring back to starting with why, so mm. what's the purpose? So what is the, the purpose, the mission, if you like, of the Science Museum? <clears throat> the mission of the group, the Science Museum group, is to inspire futures. That's really, you know, the core of what we do. So anyone who comes into contact with what we do, we want to inspire them and inspire their future. That might be their career. It might be their engagement with science and tech. It, particularly around the STEM subjects as well, you know, uh, science, tech, uh, engineering and maths. Mm -hmm. we, you know, we want to give people a, 
a different outlook on life. Um, and one of the core elements of that is what we call, quite an academic term, isn't it? Um, a concept that we, we've developed with King's College London, which is about um, science capital. Now each of us walk around with a certain amount of knowledge about science and we want to cram as much science knowledge as we can into anyone uh, who we come into contact with uh, and engage them with science and fill up that uh, that uh, wealth of knowledge. And that doesn't matter whether you walk through the door at five years old or you're here 85 years old, I'm pretty confident that we can um, engage with you, teach you something new, uh, and inspire you to, to do something in and around the science um, sphere. I love the simplicity of that at, at any level. It's quite clear. Um, you mentioned earlier on the little story about a letter you received from a, a parent, mm. I think from Israel, she brought right. a child here. Yeah, so um, we, we had a visitor a number of months ago, a uh, little girl who came from Israel, uh, visitors to London. Um, we had a letter written to us from her, um, her mum. They'd been to Wonder Lab, which is our hands-on uh, sort of children's interactive gallery. And she said in that letter, she said it was uh, her daughter arrived uh, wanting to grow up to be a princess and she left wanting to be an astronaut. And I think that really encapsulates sort of what we're Beautiful. about here. Mm. How do we uh, really engage with those people at a very young age to give them a, a pathway and an engagement through science? Now, you also have referred earlier to um, revising your mission, but also the vision and values of the organisation. Can you tell us a little bit more about these new values and vision? Yeah, so we've um, taken some time over the last couple of years to really think about what we do and how we do things across the group. Um, so Inspiring Futures is the overarching uh, sort of mission, but we've got some, some key values which support that and some key objectives that support that. One of those key objectives is to, um, to grow science capital. Um, one of the key ones for me and my team is to grow our audience and exceed their expectations uh, and that's the one that I look at in terms of one of our key objectives. We want to grow our international reach, we don't just want to be a, a great museum in the UK, we want to have connections around the world um, and we do, we've got lots of great work happening across uh, the world in terms of our exhibitions that are on tour and the relationships and research that we're undertaking with other institutions in China, Brazil, India. Um, we, we've got to increase our income, that's one of them as well. Year on year we're getting less money from central government to fund what we do. Mm-hmm. It's important that we, that, we, um, that we look at how do we change our offer and adapt our offer and be competitive in the market to, to grow our income. We've, one of the other areas that's key for is to harness the potential of digital. So we know that we're in a changing age where you know dusty objects on show is not going to be the, the way that people engage with, a, with us and we've got to, to look at how we use the digital environment best um, to work with our, um, with our collection. And one of the other things, the final thing as well that we look at is to share authentic stories. We really want to bring people closer and inspire them uh, by sharing the stories that sit behind the objects that we have. Fabulous. Now, you you touched on something for me there around the, the use of digital tools, and you said, you know, it can't just be dusty exhibits. And a lot of the knowledge, you could argue, you can get by tapping onto the internet and finding it out, but you can't get the experience. Yeah. So how do you, from your perspective as head of operations, how do you ensure a consistent, high-quality experience is being delivered? Um, I look at three things, which has come from... Um, the book clued in, I'd recommend anyone working sort of, you know, with, with, with in the service industry to, to read that book. It's a guy, um, it's, it's, it's called Clued In, How to Keep Customers Coming Back Again and Again. It's by a guy, guy, guy called Lewis Caban. And 
he touches on three things that have really resonated with me. He talks about the um, the mechanics of any experience. So in any experience, that you know, does the product or service do what it's supposed to do? And that's what I look at with my team. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I take Wonderland that has 50 hands and exhibits, what our visitors want to see is 50 exhibits that are working, not. 45 that are broken and so my gallery services team which maintain those exhibits you know I'm really driving them to make sure that we have a uh, the uptime is huge you know sort of 98% uh, onwards uh, uptime on those the other thing then is about the the, uh, the technical aspect of any experience that's the env- the environment that you're in and the museum you know taken big steps over the last number of years certainly whilst I've been here to change the environments that we've got and how um, you know the immersive experience that you can have say in one of our exhibitions or within one of our permanent galleries um, resonates with you and that goes back to you know in some, you know, some of the stuff that Disney do in terms of that environment that they deliver, they're really thinking about the sight, the sounds and smells. Mm. Uh, and you know, it's up to me to make sure that we are delivering on that each day, making sure areas are, you know, the basics are covered, you know, it's clean, it's, you know, it, the estate's aspects, the fabric of our building is looking the best it possibly can be. Uh, and the third bit that we've been really pushing on most recently is, a bit, is what uh, Lewis describes as the, uh, the humanic aspect, which is all about the people. That's the, the stimuli that people produce. Uh, it's body language, it's tone of voice, it's the words that people use. Mm-hmm. And my focus is to bring those three elements together on a daily basis uh, in order to deliver the best possible experience we can for our visitors. Okay, so let's go back to your role as head of ops. Talk to me about how the team is structured. Yeah, so I've got uh, sort of four or five teams under me. One of the biggest is the visitor experience team. So they are the team who are on the front line serving our visitors. Uh, they're doing the welcome. We have a, uh, an ask for donations on arrival, so the team look after that. And all the various areas across the museums that you'd expect to find a staff member. So the admission to exhibitions, the sale of tickets, our information desk, our call centre falls under that team. And we've also got a big volunteering team that work with us across the site that do uh, guided tours. We do um, object handling where visitors can get uh, involved with our objects. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a team of, well, I've got two people who run that for me, but we've got about 400 volunteers that work with us on a regular basis. Wow. Uh, and one of our key objectives of the museum is to be the, you know, the go-to place for volunteering mm-hmm. in the cultural sector. Um, and that's our ambition over the next 10 years is to deliver on that. Um, we've... So that's my sort of visitor experience team and there's probably in that team with our frontline team we're probably 170 180 people strong in that team uh, obviously not all of them are on each day mm-hmm. we've got a big rotor system which um, moves our teams around um, but yeah there's a that's a big team i talked about a gallery services team so we've got a tech team of about uh, 25 techs uh, plus the management team in there that maintain our working exhibits and we've got about a thousand of those and it's what we're known for, it's what people want more of, is mm. that hands-on experience, and we've got to make sure that those elements work really well. Uh, they also do a lot of mount, mating, mount making and um, cleanth builds for our exhibitions. So for our new medicines gallery, we've made over 2,000 mounts for the exhibits, uh, and that team have, have delivered that for us, so they're quite a technical hands-on uh, team. Um, I have a duty management team, and that is a four-person team. There's always one of those on each day in the museum, mm-hmm. kind of overseeing the entire operation across the building. They're um, a really important role to play with our security team. Um, so we have a contracted security pr- uh, provider, and they're working very closely with that um, provider to make sure that we, ha- we are delivering a safe experience. So that's number one on my mm-hmm. to-do list, is to make sure that this place is safe for visitors. 
Um, that's the minimum they should expect is a safe experience here at the museum. Um, and they're overseeing you know, the operations from various different departments to make sure that we are we're on top of everything. They're also a key part of our incident management team. So, you know, if we have a fire evacuation, they're the team that are overseeing that. Um, we've got a contracted cleaning team and they report into me, um, making sure again that this place is looking the best it possibly can be each day, each morning. Um, so yes, and one of the parts of the role within within the visitor experience team is our Wonder Lab. So mm -hmm. that is the hands-on uh, experience, and there's a number of different teams that come together to deliver that experience. And I've got um, a person, in, uh, team member in my uh, in that VE team that allows us to make sure that that's the best possible experience it can be. Really focused on delivering the best uh, hands-on science experience that we can. And uh, as the Vokani showed me around, then I, I hadn't seen the Wonder Lab, and it's really a, a playground for kids, uh, but in a sense of obviously learning and inspiring, yeah. as well as being fun for them to get their hands literally dirty, but to get their hands on and, and play. Now you said that that's expanded, and you talked about the kind of immersive experience. You referred to Disney a couple of yeah. times now, and how important and it's safety, obviously number one for them yeah. as well. What, what would you say you've learnt or adopted from Disney that you've managed to apply here? Um, I think the big thing for us, and it's only really happened recently, is that we've been able to set out our principles around service and our expectations of our frontline team. I think that's what Disney have done well traditionally, and they, you know, they've invested a lot of uh, time, energy and effort to make sure their people are great on the frontline, creating happiness. and. That's been a key aspect of what the work that I've done to date is really deliver on what are the founding principles and framework that we want our teams to, to work in. Um, we'd had a lot, I guess, prior to that, just learned behaviour. We would bring new staff members in, we'd kind of give them a, an induction to the organisation, but it probably wasn't particularly clear in terms of our expectations. They'd head out onto the floor and depending on who they may be working with and their... Um, perhaps their ambition or uh, or lack thereof, we would get a certain output. Mm -hmm. And so we've come up with uh, what we've um, coined as Inspiring Service, which is a programme now that all our teams have been um, inducted into in regards to how we expect them to engage and work with our, with our visitors uh, across the site. And that's gone out to our, our key frontline teams. So we trained probably over 200 people uh, most recently to to so that it's very clear about what our expectations are. And you, when we were chatting earlier, it sounded like a lot of the content for that program was born out of a real genuine engagement process you have with the store team, so sort of the teams here, to understand what works well, what the challenges are, etc. Yeah, and I know from the some of the brave work that we've done with our frontline team to really understand what it's like to work frontline and I would recommend to anyone to, as one of my directors put it here, put your head in the lion's mouth and really understand what it's like to work frontline. I think it's, it, it can be easy to ignore that sometimes and we really wanted to make sure that by looking at our own mission and values and engaging with our frontline teams that they had a say in what this looks like. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what, what do they want to deliver day in, day out here at the museum? Because they're ultimately there, the people who are going to do it. I'm not. I'm stuck in a bunch of meetings looking at, you know, strategic stuff and where we're going to be in a year, in two years' time. These guys are delivering it day in, day out to several thousand visitors. So we did some workshops. We had 50% of our frontline teams, and, and you know, we struggled like most. Um, organizations who are open 360 odd days a year to get our teams off the front line mm -hmm. um, but we managed to do that in a quiet period and we we asked them you know 
what do they want? We talked about culture, we talked about our values, we talked about the expectations for them as a staff member and their expectations and what visitors expect. You know, they are the experts and we should use that knowledge and expertise. They have some great ideas and we've got to provide the pipeline to, to provide that um, that route through to people like me so we can make some, some really good decisions about how we deliver the experience on site. And so, and after we'd done those workshops, we collected all that data. We then came up with a program that we thought was appropriate, and then we went back to them and we said, "Does this sound right? Have we got it right?" And we tweaked it and changed it. And when we rolled out that program, you know, each session was actually different. We actually changed it as we went along with the, uh, whilst the core content was the same, perhaps how we were delivering it to them and ensure that it stuck and you know it it was. Uh, it resonated with them you know we adapted it as we went along um, so I used the excuse every programme is a pilot that's, the one that's, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's my and that's it I would yeah. love to have done a week's worth of pilots before yeah. actually launching yeah. it but Everyone. that's never possible with, uh, with, with our teams here and the impact, I mean, you've, you've talked about clarity of understanding, you've got a clear purpose and inspiring futures, you've talked about getting clear on our principles of service. I would imagine, like, again, many employers, London's a good example, a real cultural mix of, of, mm. of team members from all around the world, and of yep. course, visitors too. What challenges does that bring to you? How do you recruit people who are comfortable with um, servicing and working with people from all over the world? We generally attract a number of um, you know, quite academic people, and we've had to, I think, adapt to that. You know, these aren't people just wandering in who are just looking for a just a job. They've chosen us because of perhaps that you know what they want to do in their career long term. And I think that has changed over time here at the museum. That, and we've had to recognise that that we've got, I've got some people on the front line who've you know PhDs, this, that, and the other from you know some well-respected universities, um, and they're looking for a foot in the door to find their their passion and what they do, they're looking to do, and. And I think that brings a different dynamic. And you know, we have to, you know, like I said, they're the experts. You know, these are well-educated people. They're not just saying it because they, you know, they want to have a say. They're saying it because they think it will add real value. Um, and and I think that is that is something that we we acknowledge. Um, and we have to work and adapt that. So the managers have to manage. You know, it's not it can't be a sort of an autocratic kind of environment that we work in. You know, we've got to work with those people to deliver the experience that they that they want to deliver. It's. And culture is a big thing, and I think it only takes one or two mm-hmm. within any team to sort of change that culture. And I've seen that in the last four years here, working with those frontline teams quite closely. Um, and that's where the challenge is, I think, when you've got those that are trying to work against you, and you know they don't like what you're what you're about, or what you're up to. It's about to try to recognise that and um, nip that in the bud as soon as possible, so that yeah. you can develop the culture that you want to you want to see in that frontline team. And that is it. Also comes down to the management team very very close to that team and understanding where the issues are. With some of the work that we did a few years ago, where we asked the team what it was like to work in the museum, there's um, it was a bit of an eye opener for me in terms of the perception that sits within that team. They have their own, they have their reality that they live in, mm-hmm. and then I know sort of. And then I have my own reality in terms of what I believe is happening and to be true, and there's a void in the middle. <laughs> Unless we try and cross over that mm. sort of and come to and, and really understand each other, then they'll you know they'll make up stories. And I know that I briefed the team about one thing one morning. And this was a number of years ago, and um, by the end of the day, it got round that I told them something totally different. 
and that's just been that whole Chinese whispers thing. And that's actually one of our biggest challenges, actually, that communication piece to our teams. You know, when you've got some people who work uh, for a limited number of hours, they're only here on a weekend. They might work, uh, they might be in for two days, they disappear for a couple of days, and then they're back in again. Mm things change so frequently around here that you've got to constantly look at that communication piece and that's one of my hardest challenges how do I get my message down to those guys on the front line um, and that's that's probably one of my key challenges for 2019 when we look you know when I really want to push out this message about inspiring service and how we inspire futures how do we um, make sure that our guys know exactly what is going on um, and have a source of truth um, because I don't want my team peddling you know stuff out there that's not that's not true uh, and we have to make some tough decisions here at the museum sometimes, you know, usually around finances is some of the things that we may or may not decide to do um, because of the, the financial restrictions that are placed on us. But, you know, we need to talk and communicate to our guys uh, about that. And there, there can be a friction between those in terms of, you know, our moral purpose in terms of, you know, inspiring futures, but also the business reality of that and the commerciality of that. And sometimes, you know, we do, we do decide to close galleries during the day for a corporate event hire because commercially that works for us. Now we know that's gonna have an impact on some visitors, but it's usually uh, off peak um, that we're having that impact and for a small amount of times, so it's gonna impact a small amount of people. But our frontline teams see the friction from visitors when they turn up and go, yeah. why can't I go in that gallery? Um, you know, but we've got to talk more openly with our guys about why we're doing things mm -hmm. uh, and the reason behind that so we can fill that void where they start making their own assumptions as to, you know, we're, we're just, you know, chasing the chasing the money it's not about that it's about a balanced view and a balanced decision on what we will and won't do mm. uh, on any one day I, I think I mean you've mentioned so many challenges that many of our listeners will resonate with particularly that one the you know, people coming in different hours mm. a couple of days a week everything changing every five minutes I, I'm sure there was no such thing as a typical day here mm. uh, as there probably isn't in, in many organizations but one of the things that is is a real challenge is you spoke about people joining you who maybe have an academic background very intelligent smart people um, what do you do to grow your future talent? So yeah, succession planning, is that something that, that's big for you, a, a journey, a career pipeline for people? I think um, a piece of feedback that we got a couple of years ago was that they felt, particularly from our frontline team, that there was a glass ceiling in this organisation. But we've had a couple of projects most recently that have really allowed us to think differently about our frontline team. One of those is what we called our One Collection. So we've got a storage facility in, uh, in Kensington and there's 300,000 objects in there. Uh, that building is being sold by the government and we've been given um, £25 million to move that entire collection over to our storage facility in Wiltshire. Right. And we're building a fantastic new facility down there. But we don't know exactly what's in our collection because curators have bought stuff and over time, over many, many years, <laughs> and we haven't had a robust method of recording what we've, what we've got. So, we have loft. <laughs> so, so we have, we have, we know a fair amount that's on our databasing systems, but now we've got to really ramp that up and really know what we've got. And we've been able to allow our frontline teams to go and be a part of that exercise of wow. packing our collection, of digitizing yep. our collection, of being closer to our collection. Um, and you know that's a, decision we've taken as an organisation to fund that so we've got two people a week who are supporting the operation we've got a huge number of volunteers and if you're interested in doing that then do take a, <laughs> uh, take a look at our website for future opportunities um, to get involved in that because you're going to get access to our collection that not many people do 
Yeah, well, I promise in our show notes, Alistair, we'll put a link to the piece. I'm, I, I'm a bit, I would hope there might be some people inspired yes. in terms of their future to want to get involved as a volunteer. So, in terms, so that so there's opportunities that exist within an organisation. I also think that we also need to do a better job of communicating the opportunities that exist within our organisation. Um, so we've had a number of. Um, those back of house teams come and brief their teams about their job yeah. and what does one of our registrars do who, regist- who look after and maintain the, the records of our uh, collection what do our audience insight team do and, uh, and over the last sort of 18 months we have seen I think, was, you know, I think we're close to nearly 20 people have moved on to different projects and got full time jobs off, off the back of the frontline work that we're, we're right. doing and I've tried to raise the profile of our frontline team. There's a huge wealth of knowledge there uh, that those guys can tap into. And you know, when you've got people who are already um, understand your purpose, mm-hmm. they understand the organization to some extent, they're a lot easier to induct and mm. bring into your side of the business. So we're trying to expand that. A lot of work happening at the moment in regards to apprenticeships mm-hmm. uh, and how do we grow that aspect um, and bring, you know, bring our talent along through the apprenticeship levy. Um, so our um, people and culture team are working heavily on that uh, and there'll be a big big drive next year to, to, to push that forward. So you have quite a formal process to succession planning then? Yeah, it, it, yes it is and we we invariably look for our junior management team from the museum floor. Mm-hmm. I think, just thinking now about my VE team, I think out of the eight managers we've got in there, there's six of them which have come from the museum floor. We do look for that talent on the floor whether you know they we've got that buying from them they've got that will and they really want to deliver and they're great operation and we bring them through to a management level and that's our challenge then is to take them to the next level from there and i would accept that we've got more to do in that right. area to take them from being a great operator into being a really good people manager because when you've got 15 20 people under you from the frontline team, you really need to be a really good people manager and manage those guys exceptionally well, particularly with the you know the transient nature of some of our some of our teams. The let's talk about the the visitor. Um, would you call them visitors? Do you call them guests? Do you call them visitors? customers? We're definitely a visitor. Attract, okay. Yeah, we go okay. for visitors, not guests. Okay. Yeah. Now, uh, many many things to do in London. Mm. What is it that you think stands out that will make a visitor? I want to go to the um, the science museum. And is there a is there a target audience necessarily? For us, content is king. and We can do things that other organisations can't because of who we are. Um, and so things like our uh, Cosmonauts exhibition, which was a one-off opportunity that we brought a lot of the Russian collection from the space race yeah. to London yeah. for a limited time only, that content you can't get anywhere else. And I think any other organisation would struggle to deliver an exhibition and content that that would resonate with people and that did really well for us. Last year we had a robots exhibition which was looking at the the human uh, interaction that we have with AI and all that kind of stuff. Where else can you deliver a bunch of robots where people can come and interact with them? Mm. You know, there's there's very few places that can do that. So and and we know from some of the exhibitions that don't do very well that actually we really need to think about very clearly about what do people want to see and how do we deliver that experience the best experience possible um, so yeah content is the one that really drives us and you know in terms of audiences you know, it's a broad church here in terms of who we get 
and we have a segmentation model and we've got um, we know who our key, you know, key audiences are and we'll attach audiences to specific projects or exhibitions that we're running and we'll know who the target is and we'll, we'll reach out to those but you know, we've got anything from you know, passionate specialists, those that have a real deep desire to know something and they know their topic exceptionally well, we've got to meet that audience's needs as well as the entertainment seeker. So those that just want a great day out, they want to bring their family, they want to, you know, they want to engage, they might want to learn something. How do we do something that is entertaining for them? And that's why we've, you know, over the last number of years, we've added in things like simulators. We've got a VR experience. We've got the IMAX that really um, resonate with that type of audience. Great. And I, to the passionate specialist, uh, Alistair explained to me earlier, that's their way of describing geeks. So I'm now a passionate specialist. I love that. Um, you've talked about the visitors. What kind of things do you do to find out what they love, what they dislike, what kind of research, surveys, focus groups, whatever? What, what do you do? Yeah, we have, a, we have an audience insight team um, that um, are carrying out on a regular basis the, uh, the research that we need. And it might be something very specific about specific content. It might be about a specific attraction that we might look into develop they will get out there and speak to our visitors and you know uh, see what we th- see what they think uh, we have quarterly um, research uh, audience research that happens where we get the the broad overview of what visitors make of our each one of our museums and that gives us the, the opportunity to, to really reflect on how we can improve things we've got the stats and the data for many years of doing that to see sort of what the trends are and how our audience demographic changes so whilst we've got a you know that broad church of um, different types of visitors, the, di- the, t- the numbers that come with each one of those just change. And we need to adapt our offer and reflect mm. that. Um, so, you know, we might get, for a period of time, we might get great spend in our cafes and then it might drop off because we've got a different type of audience that are coming and they might be spending elsewhere. They might be spending on our simulators or something like that. So it's, it's a constant assessment on a, uh, on a quarterly basis as to what's happening. We get some real great um, feedback through you know, just a, our channels of feedback where people email us and tweet yeah. us and on our Facebook page as well that we, we take a lot, of, um, uh, a lot of time to consider, you know, the response and how we, whether that's a response directly to them where we may well have let them down or it's actually we need to change things and how we do things and make sure that those processes that may have failed on that occasion are, are much more better next time around. I've always wondered, um, so many retailers and hospitality companies will have the mystery shopper, mm. mystery diner, whatever. Do you have mystery visitors? Yes, yeah, yeah, we've got mystery visitors. Um, <laughs> do you call them that? <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we call it a mystery shop. Yeah, yeah we do, okay. you know, and um, that is very much targeted on our frontline team uh, and the experience that they're giving. Right. Um, and they happen on a monthly basis. Um, and is there such a thing as a, again, probably not, a, a typical customer journey here, customer experience, or is it um, literally... We, we, what we do know is that a large proportion of visitors don't plan their visits in advance. So whilst, you know, if you're going to a theme park, you might go, well, I need to go on this, this, this and this. A lot of our visitors just turn up and go, great, we're at the Science Museum. What mm. can we do? Yeah, what's here? Uh, what, yeah, and that's, the, that's where the skill comes in for my frontline team to try and curate a visit for someone, try and tap into what they might be interested in mm. and how um, one gallery or another or an experience might be best for them to get something out of it. I know for a fact there are some people who will walk through the ground floor of this museum and not get off of it because they are so in good, you know, the, 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 what we've got going on there is, is uh, you know, 
that fills the hour or the couple of hours that they've got here. Yeah. They don't realise that then we've got another three floors of, of more to, yeah, to yeah. engage with. You know, there's 18 galleries here that people can engage with free of charge. Uh, and then we've got other experiences, paid for experiences, that you can bolt on to, to really enhance that experience. I like that, that phrase. I mean, you talked about curating personal visits. And again, when you think about retail and, and food and beverage as well, the customization of your product, mm-hmm. whether it's coffee or food, whatever it may be, is, is becoming more and more critical. It, I want it for me, individual for me. So this idea that someone could help me guide me through mm-hmm. what is what is available that I might be interested in with my family and my friends that I'm with, uh, as opposed to just the generic tour, if you like. Um, that to me, that's that sounds different to what mm-hmm. I've experienced in other museums, to be fair. And I, I explained to Alistair, I went to a really good um, exhibit in America, a museum in America, JFK in Dallas, but that is just, you start here and you end here type of thing. And um, perhaps you could argue there's a story, obviously you're following there, so maybe that does make sense. But I, I really love this idea that people don't know, as you say, a large portion turn up, what's here, and someone can actually, a person <laughs> on a machine, can talk them through what could be your best experience. But to get the most out of your day, I would recommend people do take a visit to our website. And what we've done recently, you know, we talk about harnessing the potential of digital. What we're yeah. able to do is take the uh, our curatorial team who have designed um, the content in any one gallery and put those put that online mm-hmm. uh, with interviews, so they can get a sense of what they would experience in each one of our galleries prior to getting here. And I think that does then enable visitors to think and plan ahead um, to determine where they go to. In, and, very few visitors will take in all our galleries and actually if you really want to get something out of them, you've got to spend a bit of time in there as mm-hmm. well to really learn the stories that sit behind some of those yep. objects. And you, know, you could just walk through and see you know, a, a large range of objects, but actually a connection with each one of those is, is different for different people and I'd encourage people to really think about what they want to see and what they want to get out of their day. We touched upon earlier you know, why would someone come to the Science Museum in, in London when you've got other things to do and you've said you, know, you can put on things that other people just can't do. The robots, the cosmonauts yeah. exhibit as examples. Who do you see as your competition and how do you stay ahead of the competition? Um, I, don't, I don't think we look at it in regards to competition as such as going, you know, how many visitors can we attract from the Natural History Museum after they've been bored to death with dinosaurs? Um, <laughs> Careful. <laughs> and... Uh, so I don't think we think about it in terms of that sort of, you know, we've got to go and grab visitors from different, you know, mm-hmm. try and attract. I think really, you know, it's, it's, it's about shouting about what you can do here and try and really resonate with people mm-hmm. um, and, and show that they could have a different experience here than they could anywhere else and just really promote our offer uh, and, and, and do it that way. Um, so, you know, which is why you know our, our marketing team are you know are trying lots of different things. Now you know, we've got a, a robust CRM system that's been in place mm. for the last two and a half years. That's made a, that's a sea change actually for us in terms of how we communicate to our audience. We can um, you know we're we we now know who our audience is and who wants to connect with us. Um, prior to that system, we had five and a half million visits across the group, and we didn't know anything about any one of those visitors. Now we've got a robust CRM system which also runs our ticketing platform. Yeah. That means we know a lot more about what people want from us and we can target our um, you know, our communications to them. So when we launch something new, we know who to go to. Yeah. And you know fantastic. Yeah. It, prior to our uh, to recent exhibitions, you know, we'd launch the exhibition, the tickets would be on sale. 
and we you know push the usual channels through the press and stuff like that to say great this is happening in a few months time um, and we'd send out a mass email to you know quarter of a million people and the uptake would be very small. Now we can target and change and adapt our communication to individuals and our different audiences. We've got a lot of better engagement and therefore you know, our, um, the ticket sales ahead of those new things are, uh, you know, go through the roof. And one of those things you know, has been Power Up, which is our gaming event, whereas mm. before we just put it on sale and hope that people come along. Actually now we're reaching out to the people that came last time and you know, who enjoyed it last time. We know they enjoyed it, they engaged mm. with them, they filled out a survey, this, that and the other. And, 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 and we can, invite them back yeah um, and they'll tell their friends they'll tell their friends and then you know we're sold out actually before they even the thing opens which is a great place to be in for us um, so you know, that's the power that that's done in, in regards to really those that do really want to engage with us we can be a lot closer to who do you because you've mentioned Disney again now earlier on but who do you look at and say I like what they're doing we can learn from that and one example I've got is Mam um, Two Swords. I think if you think of where they've come from from twenty years ago yeah. to the kind of exhibits they have now, the kind of attractions that are going on. So I'm not saying Two Swords necessarily, but who would you say? Yeah, I like what they're doing. That inspires us. Um, us some inspiration. I think we do look at the cultural sector, um, and you know, do look at what our um, partners are doing. Well, that's our partners are, I guess, our competition. But the other museum, the, the museum sector is strong in London, and there's a lot of activity that's taking place. And other museums are taking bold steps, like we are, to try and adapt and change their offer. Um, you know, places like the Museum of London. Um, you know, have some really good content and stuff that's happening down there. Mm. Uh, the guys over at Greenwich are doing some great mm-hmm. stuff down there. Um, so it's really looking at that market, I think, and seeing what's happening within our sector is kind of where we we look at uh, and what opportunities there might be. Again, with both with the V&A and the NHM in terms of the exhibitions that they're doing uh, and the new stuff that comes around from them, in that, that, that challenges us, I think, each time uh, because we have to, you know, in terms of getting, you know, why come to us rather than anywhere else? Well, yes, it's the content, but it's also how that content is delivered and that's why we're, we're really thinking about that for our future exhibitions as well. Um, you know, most recently I was over in Amsterdam and that was really interesting at the Rijksmuseum. Uh, and also uh, a museum over there that's called Nemo. And if you're ever in Amsterdam, I'd highly recommend if you've got children to head to, to Nemo. Is that one that looks like a, a ship? Yes. Oh, yeah. 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 Yes, I think I've been there. It's, it's a hands-on yeah. children interactive yeah. gallery. Um, and, you know, it's dedicated for that hands-on uh, sort of science centre experience. Uh, and they've got some great stuff going on there, which actually resonates where we are probably weaker in is that older audience, sort of the teenage audience. Mm. Um, they've got some great stuff for teenagers and stuff that's happening over there, that older audience. Um, so in that they, their experience was fantastic, I thought, when I was out there. You know, one of the key things was, fundamentally, they've got, they've got many more exhibits than we have um, in our Wonder Lab here, yeah. um, but they were all working. I was saying I saw one across the day. Right. Um, and they had a great one where we... Um, you could be a chemist, so you could you know go into a lab. They built this lab, and you were doing these uh, demos and tests and stuff in there on your own. Um, again, an immersive experience that I think would resonate with, with any family really. Yeah. Last question on operations, really. What are your key metrics? Um, the key things. Well, I mean, commercially, we you know a lot like uh, many other retailers and commercial businesses. You know, we're looking at our spend per head and our average transaction values. Uh, we meet weekly to look at that. Uh, very detailed forensic analysis of uh, the trends that are happening across our site and the areas that we you know the levers that we might need to pull in order to respond to those those things that are happening. Um, so there's a real commercial focus here, uh, and that's part of my role because my frontline team are delivering that ultimately. Um, the again, we we don't use Net Promoter Score to 
traditionally as our mm. uh, as one of our key metrics. And that's because actually, when you ask somebody, would you you know recommend the science museum? Most people, just because of who we are and what we do, would say yes anyway. So I think it, we wouldn't find the um, so that differentiation that you're looking for. So we um, we use a slightly different metric, which is looking at you know um, would you uh, how likely are you to recommend a visit? So it's, you know, um, unlikely, likely, you know, very likely, and we just work on that parameter. And what I'm looking for is the swing of that over time in terms of people who would highly recommend a visit to us, uh, because people would invariably, just because of what we are and what we do, would say, "Yeah, go to the science museum. You're likely to learn something." Actually, I want it to be better than that. You yeah. Actually, you've got to go there because they've got Wonder Lab, and you're going to see a great show. Our explainers, you know, are going to blow stuff up. It's stuff that you're not going to see anywhere else. It's interesting because I think NPS, uh, I, I think it's a great metric, but the, mm. the one of the challenges people just stop at the what's the percentage? Yeah. And it's actually why are they, the questions that come next that understand why they've uh, given you that number, yeah. what would make them more likely to make it highly likely than likely or whatever yeah. it may be? Yeah. That's the real data. Mm. Um, looking ahead now, lastly, mm. what's kind of the operational opportunities for you over the next 12 months? What's your key challenges? Um, we've got four building sites here at the moment. <laughs> a significant amount of work that's going on to change and redevelop this site so we've got our um, new medicines gallery that's going to open uh, so that's going to chart medicine and our relationship with medicine over the last 400 years that's going to significantly change the first floor of this museum it's going to be 2,000 square meters which is a huge which is the biggest gallery change that we've seen at this museum um, that work we've already finished one gallery and the objects are already going in there but it won't open until um, autumn next year um, that, that that is a challenge for us daily so when someone cuts through a pipe, they cut through a cable. Yeah. Um, you know, we had an issue during half term, actually our busiest time of the year, we had to kick out, uh, evacuate um, a large part of the museum because a contractor had gone through a cable in our fire alarm system. So there's a lot of work that has to be done. And logistically, you know, we are in a challenging place physically. We're an island, essentially. We don't have a huge amount of outdoor space to um, bring vehicles in, unload, all that kind of stuff. So our, one of our biggest challenges is around how do we make all that work and happen mm. uh, around the site. So we've got to deliver on all those projects um, this year, and that's a key part of my team's role daily. How do we adapt our offer in order to accommodate the needs of um, our um, our um, contractors who are working on site. Um, so yeah, we've got a big, we'll have two or three new places, um, areas opening across the next year, which is great. We've got a Science City Gallery, which is one of those, which is about the uh, the start of sort of scientific instrumentation. And that will open uh, sort of the back end of the summer. Um, we've got some new lifts coming in. Vertical access around this building is difficult. There hasn't been enough provision. Right. Given the, the number of volume of visitors that we have and the types of visitors that we have, a large proportion come with buggies and required level access. Yeah. Um, so we'll have two new lifts going, which will be a, a godsend uh, sort of operationally for us. And I mean, it's going to be interesting in terms of visitor numbers for us, I think. I think that's going to be one of the challenges for us commercially. Can we maintain our numbers in light of Brexit? And we don't really know which way that's going to go in terms of, you know, that I was at a meeting a couple of weeks ago at DCMS with a range of museums thinking about what is the impact of around the world of Brexit in mm. terms of our brand as a, as, you know, UK, PLC, all that kind of stuff as a, as a tourism attraction. Are people still going to want to come here? Uh, and it's, you know, about... 35% of our visitors are from overseas and you know we want to maintain that it would be higher actually that's yeah. sure. um, so we're looking you know really uh, 
what will that mean for us? I think we might have to adapt and change mm. those. We've got a new event space happening at the museum, daytime event space right on the top of the museum, which gives you a fantastic view across London. Uh, operationally, that's going to be a change for us and a challenge. Mm. Um, hopefully that will settle in in the new year. Um, and uh, you know we'll have lots of you know delegates from, um, from a range of different backgrounds sort of uh, on site. And again, we can. How do we bring them into the museum and then have a museum experience as yeah, well as yeah. having a, a corporate experience? I think that's one of the things that we are looking to leverage as well next year. And can I just say, I've got a sneak preview of that stunning space, absolutely stunning space. And I think when people can, I'm sure it'll be, you know, obviously when it's launched, mm. pictures available, but you really do get um, the view that you just mentioned is, is pretty spectacular. So, a uh, really good light, airy space for, for events. Uh, my last question, and I, I have to ask this, particularly here, which is always, I believe one day, because I'm a passionate specialist, that uh, people, time travel will be possible. Yeah. So, and I'm in the Science Museum, so it's got to happen one day. If you could go back and talk to a young Alistair, mm. what piece of advice would you give him? Um, I think one of the things that I've learnt is, is about patience. And having that patience, both, I guess, in terms of my own ambition, in terms of where I want to go and what I want to do, but also in terms of my management style and approach, I think that is, um, you know, people, I think that actually comes from being a father. I've got, you know, three young children. I think that has really given me a very different perspective on things. So, you know, I'll be honest, when I first came in here, my approach to management was probably what I'd learnt from being a footballer. <laughs> Taken in a dressing room and given a telling off. And people have been brutal with me. Mm. You know, performance mm. wasn't good enough, you've got to up your game, and that was kind of the culture that I was used to. Mm. And I did that here when I first came into the museum here, and there was some issues that existed, and I got the team together one day. The museum had closed early, and I got the team together and said, Look, this has got to stop. Mm-hmm. Boom, boom, boom. I don't want to see this ever again. And you know, I talked about that, the, the type of people well, that just didn't resonate with them. Somebody standing up and just going, "This can't happen," is just not a um, is not a thing. You've got to have to um, recognise where the issues are, but that patience to sort of work with that and understand that and change things over time. Uh, and I've been doing that with some of my management team, just recognising that you know people aren't going to change overnight. My kids aren't going to be you know behave instantly better you know, overnight. You've got mm. to work with them and coach them to some degree to see how they can change and adapt. I think that's probably one of the things that I've, if I was going back into the museum, certainly into the museum and managing a much bigger team than I was at Wembley, I think that kind of, being able to set back and having that patience and going, you know what, let's think about this. What is the best result that I can get? How do I go about doing that? It's probably the, probably a bit more of a thinker rather than just wanting to change things instantly. Patience and reflection mm. like that. Alistair, thank you. Thank you for giving us such a fascinating insight into you know a very different part of the world for yeah, us, really. Um, if it's okay, we'll be putting the, the links to the Social Science Museum in the show notes, uh, the link to the volunteer page that you mentioned yeah, earlier. Um, and if it's okay, your uh, LinkedIn profile as well, mm-hmm. so people can contact you if they're interested in learning more about what you do, mm-hmm. uh, maybe coming to work here at the Science Museum in the yeah. future. Who knows? Maybe you'll be inspiring some future careers today <laughs> through the podcast. Okay. Thank you for your time. No worries. Thanks, Lee. So I think everyone would agree, a different episode today, looking at a very different type of organisation, but one clearly very iconic for London and for Britain. I think there was two or three things that really stood out for me listening to Alistair today. One, and we keep coming back to this, the importance of a clear purpose, understanding what it is we're trying to achieve, and one that is really simple and clear, but is compelling. And the whole point of inspiring futures, I think, has a very emotional anchor to it. And I love it. Um, the book that 
uh, Alistair referred to, clued in by Lewis Carboni. I definitely is going to be on my reading list. Um, he talked about the mechanics. Is everything working, functioning as it should? He talks about the technical. That's very much about the experience, the immersive experience, but also the, the human, the humanic aspect of how people and guests relate to one another uh, and interact. Um, asking your people, I think, how did he put it? Put your head into the lion's mouth and really understand what's it like to work here. Asking for that feedback, but being open-minded to hearing it and making changes, I think it's a great message for any organization. And finally, that piece around inspiring service training that they did, linking straight back to that purpose, linking to the values and the mission. Thanks again to Alistair. His details are in the bio on the show list. Uh, show notes even we've also got of course the link to the volunteering in case you're interested in being inspired yourself and until next time my thanks to Alistair for his participation today also as ever to Sam Walsh our editor and publisher and we look forward to the next episode until then take care